So as Tom uh, mentioned earlier, this is Epiphany Sunday. It's not probably one of the ones that we most think of when we're considering... Did I just... Okay, I'm back out. Uh, if I come out and in, I'll just kind of move in this direction. It's not one we normally think, think of when we think of like the top church holidays of the year. Um, but it is, a, it is a significant one. Epiphany means revelation. It means something being shown. And as Tom said, it's the time that we think about when the wise men came to see Jesus. It is, I think, a passage that is about something that comes to be known, and more particularly about what you do with what you know. So, um, as a kid, I watched entirely too much television during the afternoons. Maybe you were like that, maybe not. Which meant, of course, that I saw way too many commercials. And what I distinctly remember, and if you grew up in the 80s, maybe you do as well, is that it seemed like every fourth or fifth commercial was some sort of public service announcement. So there was like C-3PO and R2-D2 telling us not to smoke. Does anyone remember that one? Or probably most of us, if, if you're my age, remember this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Yeah. Um, I, but I feel like the one that I saw most was the G.I. Joe ones. Um, so G.I. Joe, you know, it was a cartoon. And in these public service announcements, a kid would do something really dumb. Like, you know, he would suddenly lose his family in an amusement park or he would run out into the middle of the road and suddenly a G.I. Joe character comes to the rescue and tells him, don't do that, and gives him some life tip that will change his life. And then the kid says, now I know. And then, of course, and anyone who has seen these commercials know what comes next, and knowing is half the battle. This is the G.I. Joe commercial. Knowing is half the battle. What kind of a statement is that? I mean, I think even then I felt like it was cheesy, but even more so now. I mean, is that, is that even true? Is knowing half the battle? I mean, how many things in our life do we know, but actually we, that doesn't help us as much as we'd like to? Like, we know that if we want to be healthy, we have to eat healthy and exercise. That's not half the battle. The battle actually is eating healthy and exercising, right? I mean, we know it's not good to lose our temper. We know that it is good to be praying and spending time in God's Word. It's, it's, not, it's not primarily about what we know, is it? It's about what we do with that knowledge. And that's, I think that's what we see actually in our passage this morning. There is something that comes to be known, something extraordinary that comes to be known, but we see Two very different responses, and it's those responses, what they do with the knowledge that makes all the difference. So we begin, of course, as we've already mentioned, with the wise men, uh, literally the magi, kind of short for magicians. It says that they have come to Jerusalem from the east, from Persia. It's been probably over a thousand mile journey. We we're talking many, many weeks because they have seen a star guiding them towards that direction. Now, at, at the risk of kind of popping some nativity scene bubbles, I mean, Matthew says from the outset that all of this happens after Jesus was born, which means this is at least weeks, if not months, after the birth of Jesus. So the wise men actually probably never met the shepherds. And, and we don't actually know how many. Yes, they have three gifts, but it could have been like 20 magi. We're not quite sure. What we do know is what the Magi are. Magi, the simplest way of putting it was they were highly respected astrologers. 
That probably sounds like a strange combination. But in that day, astrology was seen as kind of like the high point of science. Like the, the great intellectuals knew how to study the stars and try to predict the future. Leaders, emperors would, would make decisions about whether to go to war or not based on what these really smart, kind of Harvard-educated, from their perspective, astrologers would tell them. And the experts of experts, the celebrity astrologers were these magi from the East. These were people who were a big deal. But they were astrologers, which means, from our perspective, they were superstitious. And from the Bible's perspective, they were pagan. They, they did not know anything about God, anything about the scriptures. In fact, the Old Testament expressly forbids trying to tell the future by looking at things like stars because that's not relying on God. So they are highly respected pagan astrologers. Those are the ones who are coming into Jerusalem. If you're trying to imagine what it must have been like, imagine if today, say, the Dalai Lama came to visit Chicago. You can imagine how, like, it would be in the press, the newspapers would cover it, there would be crowds that would go out to see it. This would be a pretty big deal. And that's what was happening in Jerusalem when the wise men, the magi, were coming to Jerusalem to have a meeting with Herod. And Herod, that's the other character. I've said there's two responses. We've got the magi and we've got Herod. And Matthew, the way that he opens the story, I think he intends for us to sense that there's probably a a problem that is looming. Did you notice how he says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, which Herod? Oh, Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him when Herod the king heard this. Do you, do you see the tension? Where is the king? They ask the king. It's even more of a tension for the original readers of Matthew who know about this Herod figure because this Herod figure was, he was not a very nice man is probably the simplest way to put it. He, all of his life was really, truly devoted to becoming the king of the Jews. So when he was much younger, he made just the right alliances with powerful Roman figures. And when those Roman figures came to their great power, they brought Herod with him. And Herod was able to force them or at least really get them on their side so that they would call him the king of the Jews. And he was appointed king of the Jews. And then he realized no one in Jerusalem actually liked that. So he did everything he could to make them think of him as the king of the Jews because he made this massive, expensive temple just like Solomon did so that people would revere him. That was, in some ways, the, the less negative side of this character. He also found anyone who potentially could be a threat to his throne, and each of them he killed, including two of his sons and his wife. Not a very nice man, and certainly not someone who takes threats to the throne casually. And so you can just imagine how it must have been for him as these great magi figures coming into this small city that's never seen anything cool like this for quite a long time, and they want to meet with him. And so, of course, he feels very important, and he welcomes them in, and he's expecting to have some kind of great conversation, and almost before they say hello, they say, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Can you tell us where he is? 
They're not interested in him. They're meeting with him, but they don't see him as anyone important. All they are seeing is some sort of menial leader of a podunk country. They're just asking him for information because they want to know about the person who was born that was so important that the very stars in heaven moved to honor him. So it's not surprising when we see what Herod's response is. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I think this is an understatement. I mean, we're not surprised that he's troubled when we know about who he is. And, and what's more, we're told not just him, but all of Jerusalem with him were troubled. They're wondering, who is this king that they're talking about? What, what is this upstart? I mean, mind you, people in Jerusalem are not generally big fans of Herod. Herod was not a nice man. But they're also a little threatened about, you know, is this a change to the status quo? It's amazing what people are willing to do just to keep the status quo and what they're willing to put up with. They are troubled by this idea of a new king coming. Those, those responses I don't actually find terribly surprising. What actually does surprise me is the very next thing that we read, something that we see Herod doing. Verse 4, it says, And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, Notice this, where the Christ was to be born. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah, which itself is the word for anointed one. The anointed one was the name, the title of the person that the prophets kept on speaking about of God's great promise. Do you remember in Advent how we talked about how the one who would be born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the increase of his government will no, no end, the one on whom the spirit of the Lord dwells. When Isaiah is talking about that, he is talking about the Christ. And many prophets would be speaking about the Christ who was to come. And notice that somehow in this moment, I mean, Herod is an unbalanced figure, but in this moment, God has revealed something to him. He sees in his own way what is taking place. I mean, he believes the prophets enough to actually ask, could you tell me where the prophets say this person's going to be born? He's using the prophet's guidance to kind of navigate what happens next. He, he actually, at least in some way, believes that these promises from Hundreds upon hundreds of years ago that God would send this great king who would bring salvation, that these promises were being fulfilled. So, so what happens next? Well, he asks this question and they tell him it's Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Judea, for as it is written by the prophet, and it's talking about Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah, hundreds of years ago. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem. Bethlehem was just this, well, it was this small village. Only, I mean, a 10 miles walk from where Herod was in that moment, kind of like Glen Ellen is to us right now. It's not very far. So Herod hears this, and it says, in secret. Maybe, you know, presumably this is taking a few days, this whole process. So, so the, the Magi maybe are in their rooms in Herod's palace, and Herod, without any of his advisors, goes to them, makes sure no one else is in the room, and he has this kind of covert conversation. He says, so when was it that this star appeared? And really what he's asking is, how old is this child? The, the assumption is that whenever the star appeared, that's when the child was born. 
And the wise men tell him. And then he gives them some information. There's an information exchange. Where you need to go is Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where the prophets say, and, and once you go and once you find the child, come on back to me and let me know so that I may worship him. Now, what we have right now in this moment is what I would consider like a fork in the story. From this point, we see two radically different paths diverge. Because in this moment, if you think about it, Herod and the wise men all know basically the same thing. They all know something. And what actually they know, if you think about it, is the gospel. They both know, first the wise men just through the star somehow understanding that, and now Herod through the star and the prophets, they realize that the Christ has been born. They realize that God is in some way bringing salvation. They have heard and they know the gospel. And the question is, what do they do with it? So we, we see the story of the wise men as it, as it proceeds from this moment. They leave, maybe in the afternoon, that three-hour walk from there to Bethlehem. And, and as it goes to dusk and as it becomes dark, something extraordinary takes place. It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it first rose, the one that had been guiding them all the way to Jerusalem, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, all sorts of scholars kind of either will look at this skeptically and say, how does a star do that? Or, or we'll try to come up with some sort of explanation. There was a supernova. There was a comet. I think they're all missing the point. W one commentator, and I'm convinced that this person is right, is saying that Matthew, when he's writing, is, is, meant, is writing in such a way to help us understand what's really taking place by echoing something that happened more than a thousand years ago. Do you remember when Israel was first leaving Egypt, if you know that story. God goes as a light before them to lead them. And wherever he rests, that's where they stop. And what we're supposed to understand here is that somehow, this whole time where they've been seeing a star, it's not just any star, it's actually God being at work. And now God is leading them and he shows by settling down in one place where they are to go. This is not just astrology. This is God taking them and showing them his son. And, and do you notice their response? This is actually, you know, it's translated fairly well because it's kind of a funny way that Matthew puts it. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like in case you didn't miss it, Matthew just kind of puts one word on top of another. You know, another way of putting it is just they were really, 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 really happy. Because they have never experienced anything like this. Right? I mean, it might be a nice if it's just, hey, we finally made it. But no, this is something that they are just, they cannot contain themselves in overwhelmed excitement because somehow from sky a light has come and has drawn them to one particular house and they realize that this is no ordinary moment that they're experiencing but that the God of the universe has reached out and brought them to see something. And they cannot contain their delight. And I wonder what they're expecting when they, when they knock on this door of this very ordinary house. Are they expecting what they would end up seeing? Uh, just a, a really young, unimpressive-looking woman and a child maybe a few months old in her arms? 
I don't know, but whatever, whatever they're expecting, it's clear that they, they sense that something extraordinary is taking place. Maybe it was just because of the star, but I wonder if it's just as they come, even though he seems not at all significant outwardly, they realize that they are in the presence of someone who is more extraordinary than they have ever met in their lives. Because, because they fall down on their faces. These incredibly important, revered, top of society scientists, they fall down on their face and they worship him as their king. And they give him gifts that are only fit for a king, gold and spices and perfumes. And in this moment, we're actually meant, if we understand or remember our Old Testament, to remember another scene that happened a thousand years ago. See, when God first called Abraham, he didn't just plan on saying, I just want to rescue the Israelites. I don't care about anyone else. That's not what he says. He says, I'm going to bless you in such a way that all of the world will be blessed. All of the world will see me through you. And, and later, when you get to like the greatest moment in Israel's history with Solomon, you see that beginning to happen. Solomon and all his greatness, the queen of Sheba comes and she sees the greatness of the king, and she glorifies God, and she gives him gold and spices and perfumes. And now what do we see? But someone even greater than Solomon has come. And even astrologers, the great from all the far east, come and worship him. Do you, do you see how the grace of God is on display in this moment. I mean, again, let's just think, astrology is just ultimately superstition. God does not reveal his way through the way he moves the stars. As I said, he prohibits it. This was not anything that God endorses, and yet, and yet, God doesn't just say, you know what, these guys are wrong, and until they actually come to understand who I am, I'm not going to show them anything. Now, what does he do? He actually works through their very superstition, through their paganism, and somehow works in it. Not worried about whether it's going to look like he's endorsing it or not, he brings them to himself, even using the stars that they so confusedly kind of are worshiping, those stars to bring them so that they might see the one that they should worship, the Son of God, to bring them joy because, because he loves them. Do you see the grace? He's not waiting for them to get it right. This is not a God helps those who help themselves moment. This is God helps those who are completely mistaken. And isn't that how God actually works? How often can you think of times where you believed something dumb? Like, you know what? I know I'm supposed to obey God in this way, but I'm going to wait till he gives me a sign. And yet God does something. Or even when you do something completely wrong, completely sinful, and yet even in the midst of the badness, God does something remarkable for you. That is how God is. That is the way his grace is. Despite us and even through us, God will show his son so that he might rescue us. And that's what we see in this moment. And we see the wise men, the magi, for all of the mistakes they have made, getting one thing right, and it's the only thing that matters. When they see Jesus, they believe, and they worship him as king. 
So that is the first response. The first group, who do, we see what they do with what they know. But there's a second response. It extends a little bit beyond our passage, but it's very much a part of the story, and that is the response of Herod. So, so Herod says, you know, I want you to come back to me so that you can tell me where he is so I can worship him. And, and God does a couple of things, sends a couple of dreams that kind of turns that plan upside down. If, if we were to continue in the following verses, we would see that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and mother. Before that, as we actually already saw, an angel appears to the wise men and sends the wise men in different directions so they don't interact with Herod. And, and when the angel speaks to the Joseph, specifically what the angel said is, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. In case we didn't catch the sinister undertones from before, now it's clear Herod had absolutely zero desire to worship this God-appointed king. He is against the Christ. You might call him an anti-Christ who has decided to do everything he can to oppose this Christ, even if he is the fulfillment of prophecies. And if you know the story, you know the horrific details of what happens next. When he realizes he's thwarted, when he doesn't hear the wise men coming back, and he doesn't know which house it is, he decides his only solution is to kill them all. To kill every male child in Bethlehem, ages two and under. Can, can, you, imagine, can you imagine the horror in that village, the, the tragedy, the awfulness and how hard Herod's heart is to be willing to go to that measure. What does Herod think he's going to accomplish? I remember a friend of mine was talking about how he had a conversation with another person he knew who was who believed some of the things of the Bible, but had just some really difficult things that he just felt kind of offended by some things about Christianity. And this friend of mine just decided to be blunt and said, okay, so if you're in an argument between you and God, who do you think is ultimately going to win that one? Who does Herod think is actually going to win if he's setting himself against the almighty God who said something would happen 800 years ago and is happening and says, this is going to be the great king? What does he think he's going to accomplish? I mean, he, at this point, is 70. He doesn't know this, but in a few months, he's going to die anyway. He, he should know, though, just by doing math, he's not going to be king forever. Does he think that somehow he can hold on to his throne by killing everyone else? By stopping God? You know, what he's doing here is he is, because he is so threatened so against when he knows who the Christ is, he is so against the Christ, he is just putting himself in a line of people who have done this again and again. If you remember, if you were here with us more than a year ago when we went through Exodus, Pharaoh has the Israelites in Egypt and Israel is growing because God is blessing them and Pharaoh is frightened by that. What does he do? He decides all male children who are born should be killed. He's just like Herod and it doesn't work out well for him. And then you have King Saul, who is this king over Israel, but he comes to understand that David is God's appointed Christ, God's appointed anointed one. And what does he do? He tries to kill David, and it doesn't work out well for him. 
I think even today we see this when there are people in power and they come to understand the power of the gospel, the power of Christianity, the power of Jesus. Do we not see times where, where they're trying to imprison the gospel, trying to persecute the gospel, trying to shut it down, and I guarantee you it will not work out well for them in the end either. Now, lest you think that, that what we're seeing here in, in Herod's response is just something about people who are these kind of insane leaders, you should know that when Matthew is beginning the story, he's actually beginning a story that will continue all the way through the gospel, a story of what happens when Jesus comes to his own and his own do not receive him. It's not just Herod. I mean, when Jesus comes later on and he's preaching and he's doing amazing things with miracles, people respond in one of two ways. Some people are overjoyed and they realize that something amazing is taking place, but many people hate it. They're offended. They're threatened. They're angry. And more and more you see a group of people deciding that they are against Jesus. They are against the Christ. And we should be clear about this, that this is not because these people don't understand who Jesus is. See, if you think someone is just a nut job, or you think someone is just a fraud, you will dismiss them, you will laugh at them, you might even mock them, but you're not likely to be absolutely incensed at them. You are not likely to be interested in killing them. No, it's because these people knew who Jesus is. That he is God's appointed king. And that knowledge terrifies them. Because when you truly come to understand who Jesus is, when you truly come to understand what it means that he is the king that God has sent, you have to come to a realization that you are not the king. That you are not the one who gets to have the final say over your life. That you are going to have to let go control and that there are going to even be some things in your life that your king is going to insist that you change. And for some, that knowledge is so threatening, so terrifying that rather than accept it, they decide to do everything they can to oppose it. It's the story we see in Matthew. That's what leads to the cross where people cry, crucify him. It's that they know that Jesus is the Christ and they do not want him. And so what Matthew has for us in, in this story of the Magi is, is a warning. It is not enough to know the promises of God. It is not enough to be a part of the people of God. It is not enough even to know who Christ is. Jerusalem and Herod knew these things, and they opposed him. The sad reality is it's entirely possible to grow up in the church, to spend years in the church, to understand the gospel, and even at some level to believe it. And yet, with that knowledge, do exactly the wrong thing. To, to maybe start with complacency, uh, that's fine. But that complacency doesn't stay put, it moves to apathy. I'm, 
just doesn't really matter that much to me. And then apathy moves to resentment. Why do I feel like I keep on being told what to do? And whether you realize it or not, that resentment becomes a form of opposition. Setting yourself in opposition to God's appointed king. And it does not end well. There is a warning here. For those who know, be careful what you do with the knowledge. It is not enough to know. It's how you respond. But there's not just a warning. There is something beautiful in these verses if we just notice it. The beauty of what we've already paid attention to, that, that God, God takes a group of lost people who are completely going the, the wrong direction, and in spite of that and even through that, he brings them to himself because he loves them. He loves the lost, and he loves you, and he loves me. It, it doesn't matter all that we have done wrong in his sight, ultimately. It doesn't matter all that we have done that's mistaken if, when he shows us Jesus, we respond with faith and worship and believe he is the king because he is the king for all nations and all peoples throughout the world. The Apostle John puts it this way. Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. We've already said that. But those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This morning, God is revealing Jesus even now to us. And he invites you and he invites me to receive him and to believe in his name. I invite you please to join with me in a time of kind of silent prayer and response. Um, whether it's a time of confession or a time of profession of faith in our hearts, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a little while. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you have given us the privilege like you gave to the Magi two, two millennia ago. You have given us the privilege of being able to know about Jesus. That you have shown us the reality of your gospel. Lord, we confess that at times we do not place our faith in that reality. At times we respond to this knowledge with complacency or even apathy. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, that you would strengthen us, that our faith might be deepened and that we might, like those magi from far away, respond in worship and adoration as we see the glory of our great King. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I quoted just a moment ago, 
The Gospel of John tells us this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, the light of the world, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.